Good morning. I invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Christmas is over. And Jesus grew up. And, and he became... He became that amazing person that we spent the Christmas season thinking about. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And today we return to some of the things he taught us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. Why do we do that? We do that because he is the wonderful counselor. And this is some of his wonderful counsel. You know what makes his counsel so wonderful? It's always right. It's always good. I wish my counsel were always wonderful. You know, I wish every time somebody wanted my advice, I would know exactly the right thing to say. That doesn't always happen. But Jesus' counsel... His instruction, his teaching, his guidance, his advice, his command, his counsel is always right. It is always good. It is always in our best interests to follow. But you know, here's the thing. It's really easy to say that. It's really easy to affirm, yes, because Jesus is my creator He's my Lord. He's my Savior. It's easy to say that because He knows me the best and He loves me the most, that whatever He wants me to do is always the best. It's easy to affirm that. It's easy to say that. It's easy to believe that until, until I discover that He wants me to do something that I don't really want to do. Or I find that he said something that I, you know, I really have a hard time agreeing with that. And I'm not sure my friends would agree with that. And yeah, Has that ever happened to you? Yet? I say yet deliberately because if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. Because Jesus said some really challenging things that go directly contrary to what comes naturally to us. There are going to be times when Jesus' counsel does not seem all that wonderful. And I suspect that today may be one of those times. Because we, beginning today and for a few weeks, we are going to be looking at some of the most unpopular things Jesus ever said. How's that for a compelling introduction, okay? Well, we're going to get to it, but before we do that, I want to show you one of my favorite cartoons. There's a guy interacting with the pastor, and he's obviously very upset. You can tell by the look on his face, and uh, I love the pastor's response. He says, that's the idea. I'm supposed to impose moral standards on you. Now, I'm not sure that's the best way to describe a pastor's job description, but since I'm going to be talking about moral standards today, I want to be really clear about something. They're not my standards. In the sense that I didn't make them up. 
Okay, now, they are my standards in the sense that I agree with them, and they're just as binding on me as they are on anybody else. But they didn't come from me. They come from Jesus. These are His words we're going to be looking at. And because they are His words, and I really, really want you to believe this, they are words of life. They are words of hope. They are words that give blessing and wholeness and healing and satisfaction to everyone who will hear them as wonderful counsel. Why don't we take a minute? Let's just pray. Let's just ask him to help us hear his words that way. Okay, can you just pray with me? Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, you are the wonderful counselor. Your words are words of life. Your words are good. Your words are true. But Lord, our hearts can be so stubborn and we can be so prone to lean on our own understanding instead of trusting you. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit now, you will soften our hearts. You will open up our ears. You will help us hear you, hear your words as wonderful counsel today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7, 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. If you don't know, adultery means a sexual relationship with somebody who's married to somebody else or someone other than your spouse if you're married. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I told you. I've said before, some people think the Sermon on the Mount should be called instead, Jesus getting in our faces. And at this point in the sermon, he's not just getting in our faces, he's getting in our bedrooms. And uh, it's, it's not only uncomfortable, for some people it's just flat out outrageous. You realize Jesus is claiming here to have authority over this area of our lives that most people consider completely private. Um... He is claiming to have the right to tell us what to believe and how to behave when it comes to things like marriage and our sexuality. And we are sexual beings. You know, God didn't create just generic human beings. He created us male and female. And Jesus is claiming to have the right to tell us how to believe and how to behave with this dimension of our lives. And you know what? If he's right, if what he says here is true, then that means 
that many of the things that are commonly believed in our world, in our culture, about our sexuality, those things aren't true. They're just urban legends. You know what an urban legend is? Something that everybody just assumes to be true. We just kind of know they're true, and it turns out they're not true at all. Have you ever watched the show Mythbusters? It's kind of fun. It's got these guys who take various things that people, you know, commonly believe are true, and then they, they test them out to see if they're true or if they're just a myth. And it's kind of fun to watch because the myths that they deal with, they don't really matter. They're just silly. These matter. Myths about sex really matter. Because believing these myths will really mess you up. They can just absolutely ruin your life. And I am not exaggerating. I've been pastoring now for 25 years, and I have seen a lot of devastation that comes from believing things about romance and marriage and sex that are not true. Now, we're going to spend a few weeks unpacking what Jesus says here, mainly because it's so countercultural that we need to think it through very carefully. But what I want to begin doing today is I just want to begin exposing some of these popular but completely false urban legends about sex and marriage and romance based on what Jesus says here. And I'm doing this not to embarrass anybody, not to shame anybody, but to help us avoid very deep hurt and, and just serious damage. And if you're here today and you have already experienced deep hurt and damage from believing some of these things, I really want you to remember Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He came into this world to give himself to redeem us. What a wonderful word that is. To set us free. He wants you to be free. He wants us all to live in his freedom. So, based on what Jesus says here, based on his wonderful counsel, I'm going to give you five urban legends about sex that we should stop believing. I want to be very clear about this. Each time I give you one of these things, I'm, it's a legend. Okay, Please don't write it down and say, hey, Pastor Scott said this. Yeah, I did, but it was a legend. It's not true. Okay, we clear? All right, here's the first one. First legend that is not true. Our desires and our behavior are nobody else's business. Our desires and our behavior are nobody else's business. Americans seem to think that when it comes to the sexual area of our lives, that whatever we want and whatever we do is simply a matter of our own personal preference, and nobody has the right to tell us otherwise. They should just butt out. Now, you could call this the myth of sexual autonomy. Okay, do you know what autonomy means? It's a great word. It means self-rule. It means I get to make up the rules for me. I get to do what comes naturally. I get to do what I want. 
nobody has the right to interfere. Nobody has the right to tell me that's not a good thing to do. Now, there's definitely a sense in which sex is a private thing, and it ought to be. It's meant to be. But this idea of autonomy or self-rule or defining for ourselves what's good and what isn't, that's just not true. Jesus makes that repeatedly clear in this Sermon on the Mount. He just again and again speaks as though he has the right to tell us what to believe, how to behave. He has the authority to tell us how to live, to tell us what the Bible really means, and to tell us what God really expects of all of us. And so if you take Jesus seriously, you cannot think of yourself as autonomous in any area of your life, including your sexual desires and behavior. It, it really, it all comes down to this. If Jesus is Lord, then you're not. And I'm not. He is. Look at Colossians 1.18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, here we go. So that in, what's the word? Everything, he might have the supremacy. What does it mean to have the supremacy? It means to be supreme. It means to be number one. Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to be supreme in everything. In all of our lives, all the time. Not just on Sundays. Not just when we're feeling spiritual. Not just in certain areas of our lives and not other areas of our lives. In everything. He is always supreme. He's always number one. He is always preeminent over everything. Which means whatever he thinks and whatever he wants is always the most important issue in every issue. Okay, whatever the issue is, if Jesus has spoken on that issue, then what he says, what he wants, that's the most important issue in that issue. So when you belong to Jesus, you belong to him entirely. Okay, not just your soul, but your mind and your body. Every cell every nerve, every organ. It all belongs to him, every bit of it. He gets to call the shots. And if that sounds like a drag to you, if that sounds like a real bummer to have Jesus be in charge of every part of your life, including your love life or your lack of love life, if you think that just sounds burdensome and like you're going to miss out and you're not going to have any fun and uh, it's just going to be a drag, you need to get to know Jesus better. You really need to get to know Jesus better because he alone knows how you can be happy without any regret. See, that's what's so typical in this area of our life. We don't pay attention. We don't, we don't listen to his counsel. And then we end up with all of this regret and this pain. And people are just carrying these big 
bags of regret around. Jesus knows how we can be happy without any of that. So, legend number two. Sexual desire is an irresistible force. It's an irresistible force. You just can't help it. That's a legend. Now, I get this. I get this from what Jesus says about lust. Okay, lust is a kind of sexual desire that Jesus says is not okay. It must be resisted, and if it must be resisted, that must mean it can be resisted. Okay, now, I know sexual desire can feel irresistible, but that isn't true. And it's, it's not true because sex is a drive, not a need. What's the difference? Well, if something's a need, if I need something and I don't get it, I die. Okay? <laughs> Nobody dies from not having sex. They may feel like it, but they're not. So sexual desire is a desire. It's very strong desire, but it can be resisted. And if you don't believe me, let me just give you a for instance. Let's imagine a young couple. They're so in love. And they're cuddling on the couch. And no one else is around. It's a bad idea. But they begin to kiss. And those kisses become more passionate. And pretty soon things are starting to get pretty steamy. When, unexpectedly, in walks dad who came home from work early to clean his shotguns. (laughs) Question, can they stop? Yes, they can. And they will. Nothing like a good dose of fear to quench the fire of desire. Now, see, here's the thing. It's not that it can't be resisted. It's that many times we don't want to resist. So what we've got to do is we've got to avoid situations where we might not want to resist when we should. You know what the Bible says about this? It's just so practical. Flee sexual immorality. Okay? Now, the word behind sexual immorality, that means anything, any kind of sexual activity between people who are not not within the boundaries of God's established marriage covenant. Anything outside of that falls into this porneia, sexual immorality, okay? And, And that doesn't have to necessarily be an actual person. It could be pornographic, you know, indulging via video or internet or whatever, okay? What does this say to do if you feel a desire for sex outside of God's boundaries? It does not say pray about it. Yeah, pray about it. Pray till the desire goes away. Or, or discuss it. No. Flee. Run. Get away. Get off the couch. Get out of that secluded spot. Run. Don't tell yourself you can't help it. You can. You're not an animal. You are created in the image of God. Okay, that's a legend. It's not an irresistible force. And and let me just say this. You know, if if you're dating and you, the person you're dating, 
you know, especially young women, if it's a guy and he says, that if he threatens to dump you because, you know, unless you meet his needs, dump him first because he doesn't love you or he wouldn't be pressuring you. Third legend, all sexual desires are equally legitimate. All desires are equally legitimate. That's a legend. That is not true according to Jesus. Just because you have a desire doesn't mean it's good, and it doesn't mean it's good and okay to fulfill it. And here, you know, adultery is wrong, no matter how sincerely you might desire it. You might have somebody who's in a really miserable marriage, and then they meet somebody else. And, you know, the sparks get going, and it, it's just feeling really great, very affirming, and then desire comes. It's not a legitimate desire. It's not okay. You can't legitimately fulfill that. The fact is, we all have desires we have to say no to. Everybody. We all do. Because some desires are good and should be cultivated and should be fulfilled in appropriate ways, and some desires are not good, and they should not be fulfilled. They can't be legitimately, righteously. They must be resisted. Now, here's the big question. How do we know which are which? Which desires are good and which ones aren't? Well, it takes us right back to the first point. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide what's good and right and healthy when it comes to love and romance and sex and marriage? Jesus says he does. He does. Now, this truth has very significant implications in our culture, particularly big issues in our society, especially when it comes to the issue of things like same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships, things like that. I do not want to treat this lightly. I do not want to treat this casually. It is so very difficult to have a strong desire that you cannot fulfill, satisfy legitimately. That is hard. And it happens to everybody occasionally. Okay, and it could be something that you can't legitimately fulfill it because Scripture says you can't, or because circumstantially it just isn't happening. Maybe you're single, you want to be married, it's just not happening. Or maybe what you desire, Scripture says is wrong. You know, you might have developed an addiction to pornography, and you want it, you desire it, and it's not okay. It is so hard to have desires you cannot legitimately fulfill. And all of us deal with that occasionally, But for some people, it's all the time. And it's very hard. And if you're here today, and you are struggling with desires that cannot be righteously fulfilled, I really want you to know, you don't have to struggle alone. In fact, don't struggle alone. Because you'll lose. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, one of the ways we experience Jesus' rest, his help, him carrying our, lightening our load, 
helping us with our struggles, is through his people. Look at Galatians 6 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love one another. How do we do that? We bear one another's burdens. A desire for something you cannot legitimately have can be a very heavy burden. Do not look down on people who struggle with desires that you may not struggle with. Help them carry their burden. Pray for them. Encourage them. Pray with them. Help them. Because not all desires are equally legitimate. We're all broken, people. Our desires have been disordered. There may be all kinds of reasons for that. I don't claim to know what all the reasons are. We need to help. Fourth legend. How you behave sexually is not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I really can't imagine anybody thinking that Jesus would agree with that statement after reading what he says here. Okay, basic rule of thumb. If Jesus is talking about something and he starts talking about hell, it's a big deal. It's serious. And I'm planning to talk more about this in the future because what he says here, uh, it's just, it, it needs some unpacking, but I don't have time today. But Jesus is telling us that sexual sin is such a big deal that we should rather lose an eye or a hand than commit it. And you think, why? Why is sex outside of God's boundaries such a big deal? Why does he care? All right, let's be clear about this. It's not because God's against pleasure. It's not the pleasure that's the problem. Okay, some people think that, that if it's pleasurable, God's against it. You know, if something's really fun or something tastes really good, or if it feels really pleasurable, well, then that's just wrong because God is somehow against pleasure, pleasure is sinful. That is nonsense. Utter nonsense. God invented pleasure. Who do we think created laughter? Who created taste buds? Who created sex organs? And the Bible is very pro-pleasure. For crying out loud, there's a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, extolling the pleasures of the sexual union in marriage. The Bible's not against pleasure. What it's against is hurting people, destroying relationships, messing up children. And that's what not paying attention to God's boundaries on sex always does. Immorality is never victimless, even if the only victim is you. It is always an inherently selfish, unloving thing to do. And it's one of the reasons, one of the reasons our society is so messed up. Because our families are so messed up, and our families are so messed up because we're not respecting God's boundaries, His good boundaries for romance and relationship and sexual satisfaction. 
and we hurt ourselves and we hurt others so very deeply. That's not against pleasure. So it is a big deal. Fifth and last, telling people about God's standards is hateful. Actually, it's hateful not to tell people about God's standards. Although it must be done in a loving way. It's very unloving to promote behavior or celebrate behavior that God has promised to judge. You know, what Jesus says in these verses, I'm sure sounds very unloving, would sound unloving to a lot of people. And we can be guilty of talking about these things in very unloving ways. You know, angry, I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm frustrated. What are you frustrated at? Well, these people are messing up our culture. They're messing up our world. Hey, we've all messed up our world. All of us. Because we're all sinners, and that's what sinners do. They mess stuff up. And Jesus came to save us not to condemn us. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. We all need saving. And I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Christians would have a whole lot more credibility on this issue if we would practice in our homes what we preach. If Christian marriages better reflected the love and the mercy and the faithfulness of Jesus, if our speech was more seasoned with grace, we might make more of an impact. How desperately we need Him. That's where I end up here. How desperately we need him. His standards are so high. And we fall so short so often. How we need him. How we need to rely on him to live out this area of our life his way. How much we need his wisdom, his courage, his kindness to speak about these things. Honesty. Lovingly. You know, these urban legends, they need to be unmasked. They need to be unmasked, but there's only one way that can happen. And that's when His truth is spoken with His love in the power of His Spirit. That's it. His truth spoken in His love in the power of His Spirit. I want to invite you to bow with me. Pray. And I just want to say that if today these words are opening wounds, Jesus is the one who will heal those wounds, but we've got to deal with them honestly. We've got to come to him. If you're carrying a big bag of regret, bring it to Jesus. Lay it down at the cross. 
give it to him. And if you're struggling with anything in this area of life, desires that you just can't hardly seem to fight, or mistakes you've made, difficult situations you're in, I just want to encourage you, don't don't try to fight it alone. I'd be glad to have anybody come and talk to me about it. I'd be happy to pray with you. I'd be happy to give you whatever encouragement I can. We need friends who help us. It's one of the purposes that this church exists, to help people connect with friends who help them. We need to be those kind of people because this is hard stuff. And if today you have never put Jesus in charge of your life and received his forgiveness and said, I I am sorry for trying to run my own life. Lord, please run it for me. Make me right with God. He'll do that. That's why he came. That's what he died on the cross for. That's why he rose again. That's what we're going to celebrate here in just a few minutes in the Lord's table. But right now, let's just take a minute and just go before the Lord and give him whatever's on your heart. And if you feel mad or upset, tell him about it and ask him to help. Father in heaven, you love us so very much. What you have decreed and established and designed is so very good. And Lord, we, all of us, have at times failed to honor that which you have made very good. Lord, forgive us and help us be people of grace, people who speak the truth in love, people who bear one another's burdens. God, help us be those kind of people. And Lord, if there's anybody here who just needs to come to you today and and receive your forgiveness, that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, draw us close to you. How we need you. How we thank you that you have welcomed us with open arms in your son, Jesus. Thank you. We pray in his name.